0: Hey Jude, February 26, 1970, episode 18, Hey Jude.
1: The Beatles come to America, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Gow. along with that Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin. Today, we are chatting about Hey Jude, the album. Before we get into the show, we have some housekeeping notes to talk about, and then we get right into it. I have a podcast. It's called Something Came from Baltimore, which is an interview podcast. Uh, I've had it for about four years. It's more jazz, R&B, and blues. It's not really about Baltimore, but we do feature some Baltimore artists. Please subscribe, and the link is in the show notes, because we want you to be a part of that Be More music scene. The Beatle guru is Brooke Halpin, and he's all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles. He sweats the Beatle DNA. you got to follow him on his Facebook page. Come together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin, and that link is also in the show notes. We want you to be involved. Uh, obviously, you're listening, so you have some kind of interest once you to go to our Facebook page. It's called The Beatles Come to America Facebook page. And we want you to rank The Beatles' U.S. albums from best to worst. And trust me, it takes a little time. We hope you subscribe, participate, and enjoy. And just remember, we love The Beatles, so love us in our comments. And enjoy our other creative projects. It's The Beatles Come to America, episode 19. It's Hey Jude, the album.
2: Don't make it bad Hello Tom
0: It's the Beatles Come to America I have the Beatle Guru right in front of me It's Brooke Alpin And it is the Hey Jude album It is a big mess It's a compilation, but a good mess. Do you remember buying this, or did you even bother back in 1970?
3: This album came out February 26, 1970, not long after Abbey Road. Abbey Road was so popular when it came out that people were still listening to it as we got into 1970. And then when we heard about this album, I should say when I heard about this album and it was a collection of singles which I already had and furthermore Can't Find Me Love and I Should Have Known Better. Not only did I already have them as singles, but I already had those two songs on a hard days night album by united artists so to me this was nothing more than alan klein and this was his doing by the way it was alan klein you know milking the golden beetle franchise and i as much as the songs of course are are wonderful there's nothing wrong with the songs but to put them together and put it out as an album i i'm very very disappointed with this move and I'm quite sure that the Beatles had nothing to do with it at this time because they were broken up. They were all working on their individual recordings. Paul was finishing up his first solo album. John had already released songs with the Classic Ono band. He had just released We All Shine On, right? Instant Karma. So he was already working with this new band. They had nothing to do with this album and it shows. And they couldn't even, this stupid people who who put it together, by the way, this guy named Alan Steckler, who worked for Alan Klein at Alan Klein's company, ABCO, which stood for Alan and Betty Klein Company. I mean, they couldn't even get the sequencing right. You look on the back of the album, and they have a list of songs, but they're not in order of what's on the disc. I mean, how ridiculous ridiculous is that they couldn't even get that together because they didn't care you know and you can be sure that if the Beatles had anything to do with it that stuff wouldn't have happened That never happened on any Beatle album you know so the whole thing while the songs are great no I didn't buy it because I didn't want it I didn't want it I didn't need it I do have it in my hand, though, because one of my girlfriends left the album with me, you know, way back some years ago, and I'm looking at it right now. And this is photos from the Beatles' last photo session taken on August 22nd, 1969. So were these photos taken specifically for this album? No. Beatles got together because they were were breaking up, and they thought, well, we might as well have one more photo session. So that's why they put these photos on the album. So I know this album is nearing dear to you because it was the first Beatle album that you purchased when you were a young lad and I'm sure that has really nice positive feelings for you but for me this is this is ridiculous I, I really don't like it at all
0: Alan Klein created a contract that he would give one compilation per year that's ridiculous like that's a really bad idea they said that the back cover photo was supposed to be the front. It's supposed to be the front cover, yeah. and the front cover is supposed to be the back cover. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right. The listing of tracks are all wrong. But then it, it hit number two, and it, it sold out two times platinum. It also, I mean, it's been out of print since 1980. It's the pictures. Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the pictures to me are very sad and melancholy and it's yeah it's all over it's all to see all over photo yeah it's really if you think the let it be album cover is kind of dreary and and sad this is even more the reason that this album has significance to me is yes when i was a little kid i was ktel records and also uh sesame street records and but my first adult album that i got was hey jude because that song was on the radio this was like a a great introduction to the beatles because it had early beatles and then it runs right into the current beatles like i I couldn't believe can't buy me love was coming from the same band that had ballad of john and yoko felt really adult at six years old to have my first Uh beatles it was hey jude that brought me there and then the rest of the songs i fell in love with later yeah i have affinity for it but at the same time we talked about not even doing this one and i'm like i'm okay it doesn't really make it doesn't really make sense it was a hit uh, it wasn't even called hey jude at the time they were going to call it something else like the the, Be- called it, the
2: beatles again was
0: the work, working yeah. title oh uh just one note that i had is that look at that picture and just in a matter of six years what a difference they looked you know from oh. the mob tops and uh to, oh. to what they now they look just worn out The first song is uh can't buy me love let's talk about it
3: by the way i'm looking at the the photo the, the cover right now and and john and george look like old hippies
0: yeah like really like like it's a not a good look
3: it's like they're mountain living on the mountains and you know they're hillbillies
0: or something john has like a it almost looks like a woman's shirt on or whatever. And it just really, it's weird. And then I'm always yeah. wondering whose hat is that on the the statue?
3: Oh, I know who it is. It's George's.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because
3: George wore a hat during, for these photo sessions. And if you were to do research and find out Beatles last photo session, you'll see George wearing a big black hat and he just took it off for this photo and put it on the statue. What
0: is the deal with above? You know, they're, yeah. In a, in a forest or looking up and holding its... Right,
3: right. Well that to me is the best part of the <laughs> of the album. It's just really
0: <laughs> odd that it's there though. You know what I'm saying? Like
3: Well, that's you know, that's speedly. Uh-huh. I mean that's the most speedly thing mm-hmm. in terms of an album, really. I,
0: I'd like yeah, to have the, that the... as the album cover. No, I'm serious.
3: <laughs> Yeah, Uh no, it's very cool. They're they're all looking up, except for like Ringo's not looking up for some reason. Why is Ringo not looking up? But no, that's an an interesting photo. So at least they had the creativity and the imagination, which was really nice to put that above the John's door because this is John's house, by Mm -hmm.
0: the way. It's it's (laughs) it's really. I was like, okay, well, I like that picture more than I like any others, and the if they went for the the backside i don't i think that's a very typical like look for bands in the 60s and early 70s that whole sprawled out on the on a lawn and take a picture for a photo for an album all right so let's dig in this could be pretty easy it might not be but uh, first one is camp on me love it was uh, released on March 16 1964 and the b side was you can't do that it was number 1 for 5 weeks sound scan said it was the biggest jump ever, uh, 21 to 1, and it, it broke that record until 1991. Rolling Stone had uh, this ranked as the 295th song of all time, greatest songs of all time. And Michael Buble did a fantastic version of this recently that kind of reinvigorated the song.
1: i get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Cause I don't care too much for money, cause the money can't buy me love.
3: We have to, and this is the thing that I don't like about that, but we have to put it in the song in context that, yes, it was a huge hit when? In 1964. What was going on with the Beatles in 1964? It was Beatlemania, raging, so yeah. And of course this song was one of the songs that they used in the movie A Hard Days Night. So it's like, of course it's a great song. And we already talked about it. We talked about it when we did the Hard Days Night album. And it's a great song and I don't you know, I I don't really need to repeat myself. I mean if you're listening, if you're following the series, folks, be sure to catch what Tom and I had to say when we talked about the Beatles a Hard Day's Night album, because that's really where this song came from. That's where it belongs. And it's 1964. It's the Beatles during their Beatlemania heyday. And that's all I have to say about it. And the same thing with really, I Should Have Known Better. You know, we talked about that. It's in the movie. We talked about how it was used in the movie. You know, it's I love a, I Should Have Known Better. But then again, you know, it's it's something that's that we heard in 64, and we heard it as a single, and we heard it on the album from the the Hard Days 9 album. So if you want to say anything about a Hard... Excuse me, I should have known better. Please, by all means do, but I've already done that. (laughs) (laughs) That was Alan Klein, who disconnected Brooke Halpin from the call because he was not saying nice things about Hey Jude
0: Alf. Alright, we're going to number three, which is Paperback Writer. And that was released on May 30th, 1966. It was number one for two weeks. Paul was requested by Auntie Lil to write a song that wasn't about love, and that's what yeah. he came up with. There's great remakes of this by Chris Christofferson, the BGs, Floyd Kramer, Eric Johnson. Paperback writer. uh, there's a video made for this that i think stands the test of time along with rain it was back to back i'm not in love with the lyrics but i love the music of this song you don't like the
3: lyrics, a story about a writer trying, a, trying to get his it never book published
0: never personally connected with me, but that's okay. you know it's not huh. I don't really care about the paperback writer. He didn't really oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> he okay. didn't he didn't really seem to um, move me, but huh. when I was six years old, I knew all the words I told you this before. I knew all the words to this so my sisters would pin me down play the song and watch my my mouth move as I sang all the words and they were amazed that I knew them all you know at six years old they thought that was really cool
2: well that's impressive
0: yeah that's a weird memory of this song maybe it was a negative I don't know I have to get therapy for that you know so paperback (laughs) writer It's okay, but boy, I really love the music. The bass—it's and the background vocals. I guess what I'm saying is, it's a really good song. It's not my one of my favorites. That's all, and uh, I think and it's also from the Revolver album. You know, session. And I could see this being on the revolver and, and getting away with it.
3: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it has a similar sound to She Said, She Said. The guitar is sounding. The sound of the guitars. Paperback writer and the sound of the guitars and She Said, She Said.
1: Because are making me feel like I've never been
3: are very, very similar. I like this song very much. And by the way, if you excuse me, I happen to be a paperback writer. And it was nice to hear something different, you know, rather than she loves you and and she loves you again, and everybody loves everybody. You know, it was different, definitely different. And the the harmonies, the vocals, this right from the very beginning is so wonderful. It was a new sound. Because the vocals are overlapping each other, and then they have that right, paperback writer, you know the echo, "Writer." writer, paperback writer, paperback
2: writer,
3: which was really exciting. Also, this was the first time that the bass, Paul's bass, was boosted, okay? Because they were complaining, especially Paul was complaining, that the bass was not as good as some of the bass sounds coming out of Detroit, you know, with Motown, the Motown records, which they were listening to. So it was Jeff Emmerich, it was Idea. This was the first example of it, where Jeff took a speaker and use the speaker as a microphone, which is brilliant. I mean, nobody was doing stuff like that. The lead guitar riff is played by Paul and George. John doesn't play any guitar on this, which is very, very unusual. I don't understand why not. You know, why didn't John play guitar on paperback writer? I don't know. To me, that's very bizarre. All he did was he just did background vocals and tambourine a limited a limited role in this song and the other thing that's really neat is that during the last verse you know what george and john are singing Now, how did you know that tom did i tell you that already
0: oh no no i knew that a long time ago and it's the same way oh, with, you did. Oh, with, with well, girl in the background. They yeah. they did tit tit
3: tit. tit oh, tit, well, that's tit, tit, a whole tit, other situation. Tit. Yeah, that's a whole other situation. But yeah, so yeah, Jaka. Wow, what a great what a, again? You know, who would ever think of doing something like that other than the Beatles? What does Jaka have to do with a paperback writer? Absolutely nothing. Does it sound great? Yes, it does. Again, now sixty six recording revolver. What are they doing? They're experimenting. This is the beginning of their experimenting period. So that would make
0: sense. We're going to my favorite song of the Beatles of all time. Oh, of all time?
2: Of all time.
0: Yeah, it's it's the B-side to Paperback Writer. Maybe that's why I feel like it was slighted. I think it should be flipped. I love this song, and I love it because every band member gets... To be featured and to um, show how how great they are the drumming is fantastic ringo actually said it was the best drumming he's ever done which i think is awesome right. yeah. john's voice is fantastic and i love the whole backward masking in the back guitars are slowed down and they're very trippy and they're awesome and then you got paul's bass line that is ripping through the whole song i love the lyrics i just love the song Rolling Stone ranks at four hundred and sixty-three of the five hundred greatest songs of all time. It peaked at number twenty-three, and there's a lot of covers out there. U2, Pearl Jam, Coolest Shaker, Grateful Dead.
1: When the rain comes,
0: This is not just my favorite Beatles song. This is my favorite song of all time. Wow. Yeah. Okay,
3: that, that says a lot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, it mm-hmm. does.
3: <laughs> now, let's back up a bit. You said that someone had rated this 400 and something or other on a list of 500.
0: Rolling Stone magazine uh, ranked it 463 out of the 500 greatest songs of all time.
3: They were out of their friggin' minds. Are you, can you believe that? That's absolutely insane. Are
0: you saying it's low or high or shouldn't even be on there? Oh, come on. This is
3: I agree with you that this is one of the best songs ever.
0: Oh, good. Oh, my God, thank you. And what are these <laughs> stupid
3: people at Rolling Stone just because it's old Rolling Stone said so? I don't give a shit what they say. That's ridiculous. You know, they have no credibility. You know, when they do something like that, I lose complete respect for them. I mean, come on. What are they, deaf? It must be maybe only one year's is working or something. I mean that's the stupidest thing I ever heard today. Please.
0: Yeah. Five This is this this is genius. Go ahead, sorry. This is genius uh, song, in my opinion.
3: It is genius song. Yeah. Four hundred and whatever the hell it is. I can't even I don't even want to remember how stupid it is. Gee whiz, don't get me going. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: I put myself out there with this one and I'm happy that you feel the same way. The only thing I would love to see happen is when it slows down and there's like a little Paul solo with a bass tune, well, would With Ringo, it says Paul and
3: Ringo, that little solo
0: before I would, the
3: last, before the ending, yeah.
0: I would have loved to see like maybe like a couple more beats. Yeah, yeah, lo- let's just make it a little longer. Make Be- it a little longer, beca- yeah. Because it's so compelling. I mean, it's a perfect so song, good. yeah. but I was like, you know, I could, could jam out a little more about that sound. But, you know, wow. what, a, what everyone, everyone shines to the highest level in this song. The whole creativity is at its peak, I think.
3: Well, there's a, number, a couple of things that I, that I wanted to mention about this. Yes, everything about it is fantastic. Paul's bass. <laughs> oh, God. Paul's bass in this song. It's like the his bass line, Tom, is lead. It's the lead instrument. If you listen to the song, which of course you have, the bass is the lead. It, it's more prominent than the guitars, for God's sake, because that was part of boosting up the bass during these when he recorded these two songs. And his choice of notes it, it, and the sound, it, you can't. You, I don't. I don't know anybody who could do what they did in '66 like the Beatles did with "Rain." Okay, the bass line again. What he does the first the first time he plays the the bass line. During the chorus. Rain, right? He's pedaling the same note. When he, when they repeat it the second time, he's going he's playing triplets. do do I mean this is just genius. It's just genius. My God. This to me is one of my all-time favorite Beatles songs as well. And the whole thing about the backwards bit, now this is controversial, so we need to talk about it. John said that when he got the tape, you know, back then they would either get acetates, which were pressings on a, on a disc, or they would give them tape, actual tape on a reel, right? Usually when you got the reel, when you got a tape on a reel, it was you would get it and it was called tail's out, which means it needed to be rewound to hear it from the beginning. But John, and he said this a number of times, even as late as 1980, he was so stoned out after being in the studio, you know, he got home like four o'clock in the morning and he couldn't wait to hear it. And he put the tape on so that the tape played backwards, so that he heard the ending of the song being played backwards to his tape recorder stoned out of his board and he got all excited about it and he went back the next day and said, Hey lads, this is it. You know, let's put this on the end of this end of this George Martin says that's not the case. George Martin says, Oh, well, you know, that's something I did. I came up with that. And I thought it was something that John would like. Well, why would George Martin lie about it? Which is very strange. But on the other hand, this just sounds like exactly what John Martin would do. So it's very bizarre. And, and it's been one of those Beatle mysteries, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, Um, I took the ending of the piece where it's backwards at the very end, and what it is, it's John, the beginning of John singing the first verse. That's what it is. It's not anything other than that, and I've read about other people saying, oh, no, no, it's just part of the song. No, no, no. It's the very beginning that is at the end that they put backwards at the end, the beginning of the first verse is backward at the end of the song. The other thing which I find to be fascinating, and I don't know whose idea this was. I'm going to guess it was John's, is that when you look at the sleeve for the single Rain and Paperback Rider, this is the only time where you will see George Harrison and John Lennon playing left-handed guitars. So not only did they do a backwards thing at the end of the song, then they also reversed the photos <laughs> to make them look like they're playing left-handed. Very funny. Very brilliant. You know, I'm, I'm quite sure that that was a, a, a deliberate and conscious creative move. Fascinating. Just a parallel, you know, the backward element at the end of the song
0: we go right into Lady Madonna which the backside was Inner Light which would have been fun to have that song on this album. It was March 15, 1968 number one for two weeks. It is a tribute to Fats Domino. Fats Sorry. did a a version of it really quickly and it became a top 100 hit which was his 77th US chart hit which is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lady Madonna Wonder how you managed to make as me It is ranked 86 of 100 for the Beatles' best songs from Rolling Stone. 1968 was very volatile. This was kind of a return to the roots kind of sound.
3: This is song, again, context, right? Prior to this, we were listening to Magical Mystery Tour album, Hello, Goodbye, and I Am the Walrus. Now... I am the walrus is one, in my opinion, the most advanced, sophisticated song ever written by the Beatles. I'll go that far. Okay, it is just absolutely brilliant—a synthesis of rock and pop and electronic and music on and a mixture of all these phenomenal things that John Lennon was able to create. So then, all of a sudden, we're hearing a boogie woogie piano going on and a rock and roll song, and it was like, like you said, this is was a total surprise. And I remember hearing this when it came out in March of 1968, and it, to me, it was a message. Oh, okay, we're going to go back to rock and roll because the Beatles obviously listening to this compared to Magical Mystery Tour and Pepper, you know, which came out not that long. Uh, not that uh, long before we know when that came out of the summer of 67. So all of a sudden, it's rock and roll again. All right, okay, we're going to do rock and roll for a while now. And it's a Paul song. I mean, this is Paul all the way. And by the way, we should mention, you know, that uh, it's a great song. And the 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 bridge is fascinating because the bridge is actually... It's a walking bass line. Brilliant. And it's paralleling at the same time it's playing with the left hand of the piano. You know, what a fantastic sound that is. I like the bridge more than, I mean, the whole song is great, but that bridge really stands out. It did then, when I first heard it, and it still does now. And John and George both play lead guitar. What they're doing is they're playing the same riff on their electric guitars. And then the two saxophones, the two tenor saxes and the two baritones saxes, then they play the riff as well. Now, there were some problems during this recording and the problems were that rather than George Mark, who as we know, nine times out of ten, did arrangements for the studio musicians who came in to record on a Beatles recording, he did not do an arrangement so that when they came to the studio, particularly Ronnie Scott who was a big shot in London because he owned a jazz club and he had a big following. Ronnie and the other players were like, well, what the hell's going on? There was no arrangement for them. So it was like Paul was was vague, supposedly. So that's why they just ended up just playing the riff. You know, once they heard John and George playing the guitar riff, they just simply doubled it. Then, when you get to... The instrumental section, which is, by the way, the instrumental solo played by Ronnie, okay, on his tenor sax. The solo is over the bridge. Now, during the bridge, we have George and John. What are they doing? They're doing da 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 da-da-da-da, da da da-da-da-da, da 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 da. They're imitating brass instruments. And John and George's voices, when they did the mix, are louder than the saxophone solo. Usually when you have a solo, the solo is the featured instrument in the song, and it's louder in the mix. So Ronnie was very disappointed when he heard the final mix of the song. And also, furthermore, what John and George are doing, it kind of conf- it, it conflicts, There's a conflict going on musically with what John and George are doing and what Ronnie's doing. So I think that there should not have been a sax solo. Either you have John and George doing your bits, which is really funny. You know, they're having fun doing that, which adds a lot of fun and, and a great feeling to the song, especially given the subject matter. You know, this is the lyrics are not very happy. <laughs> not, these are not happy lyrics for Mr. Paul McCartney, by the way. So I would not have had the sax solo, or you do the sax solo and you don't include John and George. You do one or the other. But when you put them together, it just—you know—I mean, it bothers me a little bit. It—it it just doesn't work musically. Okay, you can say it works because it's the Beatles. Yeah, okay, I get that, but. One or the other. The other thing that makes it really interesting is Ringo. He does two drum tracks. The first one is he's just doing brushes on a snare, which gives the song a very uplifting, bright, bouncy, snappy sound that goes along perfectly with the bright, bouncy piano part. And then he also does a complete plum kit track. So it was a huge hit, as you had mentioned. And Again the lyrics were something that we uh, I didn't expect at the time, you know about a woman trying to make ends meet and she 's got a baby at her breast, and you know that kind of bit, and she's working, and oh, you, know, you know the lyrics anyhow, so the lyrically it's a, it's a surprise, and but the music offsets the unhappy lyrics it's an interesting mix. Lyrics. It's almost like, in a way, Tom, you could say that this was the new Eleanor Rigg, you know, in a way. You know, it's about this woman who's having difficulty trying to raise her children, trying to make ends meet, and all that stuff. And, but yet, it's contrasted with the very upbeat and bright.
0: I agree with you about the.
3: uh, But Uh, but
0: I. I think that as a fan, I don't think anyone remembers the sax part, you know, they... Everyone, no, it's
2: so, it's so low you can barely hear it. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I think as a whole, you know, everyone, when they think of the song, will sing this just as a part of the lyrics, Revolution, and it's the B-side to Hey Jude, and if you think about it, what an amazing, you know, 45, uh, great covers by Thompson Twins, Stone Temple Pilots. Hey! Mojo Records ranked this number 16 of the 101 greatest songs of all time. Rolling Stone ranks this number 13 of the best songs of all time, which is pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Nina Simone really had problems with the lyrics. You're going to tell me why you're laughing. Do something. Anything. And then Nike paid a half a million dollars to have this Yes, song I know, right know. From 1987, and at that yep. point, the money went right to Michael Jackson. So they, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Fans were afraid that, you know, now that Michael Jackson has the catalog, that he was exploiting, you know, the coffers of the Beatles, and Yoko approved of this. The other two did not, but Yoko thought it was a good way to take John's work and show it to a whole new generation. So there was a little, little controversy when it comes to the song, I love this song. It's actually probably one of my top ten songs. Uh, what can I say? I love the lyrics. I love the uh, the, the jam of it all. It, I, I think it's pretty wild. It, to me, is almost like a heavy metal song, where it gets me pumped up just like a heavy metal song would.
3: I wanted to address the controversy which occurred when Yoko went ahead and did the deal with Nike. I remember that vividly in, uh, I think it was, 87? 86, 87, somewhere around there. And I was was outraged. I thought it was despicable. I thought it was disgusting. It's like, for God's sake, does Yoko and the Beatles, do they need more money? No, they don't. And to take this song, which is about what was happening in the US and the UK and parts of Europe, the seriousness of what John created Lyrically, song about social change and revolution. And to use it with stupid friggin' sneakers? What the hell is that? I I hate it. I mean, that's disgusting to me. I'm sure John would have been... I mean, John would never have allowed that. Terrible move. Absolutely disgusting. You
0: can tell i hate it tom i've never heard this language from you before however let's let's back this up i i remember the the the, uh, the commercial and it was tasteful it was not a bad representation of the song the visuals were good um, it brought a lot of attention to nike I, I think it was a good song it's the first time that the beatles or used to sell a product, I, I believe, and that's the you know the connection. And now, I mean, we're looking at you know years oh, later. Well, no, you, you yeah. know, there are Good Day Sunshine and and uh, oh, I know. Yeah, I know it's
3: wide, it's wide open now. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, but this was the first one, and again, this song lyrically has absolutely nothing to do with nike sneakers nothing to do with it is no connection whatsoever so let's move on if you don't mind <laughs> yep, let's move it the song starts off with this blistering distorted guitar riff john and george ripping it i mean they're just ripping it it's like oh my god what is this this was a new sound for the beatles in 1968 you know it's a fat fuzzy distorted guitar part and then John is the one who does the opening scream. A lot of people think it's Paul, but it's actually John who does it. The Paul only plays bass and he does do the you know, the background vocals. And then we have someone other than the Beatles and other than George Martin. Now we know that historically that George Martin played a lot of keyboards with the Beatles, don't we, Tom? We know that, as we've gone through some of the tracks and some of the albums. George Martin played piano, he played organ, he played harpsichord, etc. But no. It's Nicky Hopkins, who was a very popular London keyboard player at the time. He was working with the Rolling Stones and, and many other groups. So that was a first. Let's face it, I mean, the lyrics are... You know, we all want to change the world. You know, I mean, that's really, in 1968, to hear a lyric like that was quite, quite shocking. But then John says, on the single, talk about destruction, you can count me out. Now, this time he says out, but as we talked about when we did the Watt album, and we talked about Revolution 1, when he did that, he said, you can count me out. In, because when he did the vocals that day, <laughs> he wasn't sure if he was in or out with the revolution. But on the single, oh boy, it's loud and clear that he's, he wants to be out about the destruction. He was doing, you know, starting to do all the peace things, not quite. Of course, they really blew up more with Yoko, of course, and 69 with Give Peace a Chance and all that. Between, you know, when this song first came out with Hey Jude, the juxtaposition of the two songs, to me, were very extreme. And I didn't like the harshness, and I did not like the distortion of the guitars. I didn't back then. I favorite by far Hey Jude, which was more soothing. Take a sad song and make it better. It's going to be all right, you know, and just piano and whole other mood entirely that's my feeling on on revolution
0: okay so i'm i'm the same way i thought it was really heavy when i first heard i mean obviously i was six years old so that was heavy but yeah has time passed have you feel more accepting of the song or loving it for what it is or you still feel a little put off by it
3: i can appreciate it now more now than i did when i heard it back in 68 In 68 i really I didn't like the sound of the song. I preferred the mellowness and the slow down version of Revolution 1 on the White Album. I preferred it by far over this version back then in '68.
0: When FM radio had rock stations, like now they're different, but. This would be on heavy rotation throughout the years, like an oldie on heavy rotation. So you'd hear it all the time. So it was kind of like a rock anthem, like like a Motley Crue or something that would fit in that format really, really close. We're going to flip this album over and we go right into Hey Jude. It's the first time that they use the 8-track. It was number one for nine weeks. There's an influence of the drifters in the song, Save the Last Dance for Me. There's a phenomenal promotional film that is really cool. It's the 16th Beatle number one. It was up for a Grammy for best record, best pop performance by a group and duo, best song, and it lost to all of them. Uh, Rolling Stone, it's ranked number eight of the uh, 500 greatest songs of all time. Mojo calls it number 29. Wilson Pickett did a version of it. Uh, Elvis Presley did a version and Katy Perry did a version of it. Hate
1: you, hate you. Don't make
0: it, it's I saw and
2: make it
0: This song I, I know everyone loves it, but after, you know, basically 50 years later I, I'm a little overplayed by it I think maybe it was because when I was six years old I played the hell out of it and but mm-hmm. it's a very skippable track at this point I, I'm like okay I, I got that my hey Jude ism in. I'm done uh but <laughs> okay. b- but I saw Paul in concert and I'm the first one going na no no na. you know like I'm excited about it it's just worn it's welcome out for me but I don't dislike the song
3: okay hey Jude context all right. Last thing we heard from the Beatles was Lady Madonna. Oh, okay. We're going back to rock and roll, everybody. And then all of a sudden, I remember hearing this for the first time. I was I was in bed relaxing with my transistor radio, and all of a sudden, Paul's voice came across on the speaker with the piano, and the song was going on about it. taking a sad song, making things better. And I was mesmerized. I was completely mystified. I was completely taken by this song. There is a magic and a power to this song, even though it's not a screaming rock and roll, blistering lead guitar song like Revolution. It is a very, very powerful song. It just so happened at that time that I was having some difficulty, great difficulty in a relationship with my girlfriend at the time. So this was Paul saying to me, hey, Brooke, it's going to be all right. Take the sad situation and make it better. So, granted, I admit that I cannot remove that emotional component that occurred the first time I heard it was exactly when I needed to hear a song of this. Now, all of a sudden, Prior to Hey Jude, and even though McCartney played the piano on Lady Menace, you still heard that great riff of those guitar riffs that George and John were playing. Now, there's no guitar riffs. There's subtle guitar innuendo nuances that George fills in between Paul singing. This is a piano-centric song then we saw the david frost video of the beatles performing it and there's paul at a piano he's not playing his bass now Back then, whatever the Beatles did when you were a Beatle nut, like I was, I still am, whatever they did, I wanted to do. And that goes for millions of other kids back in the 60s. If you were in a band after you saw Hey Jude, you wanted to play the piano. You didn't want to play your guitar anymore. That's how powerful, that's how much of an influence this song had on the music instrument industry. <laughs> Everybody had to get their hands on electric pianos and keyboards, and because Paul played the piano on Hey Jude, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Yes, they went to Trident. They didn't record this at Abbey Road because Trident had an eight-track, and Abbey Road at this time did not. So they went over and did it. And yes, it was nine. It was nine weeks or number one. Nine consecutive weeks. So yes. This song was played constantly on the radio during this time period. Every time you turned on the radio, it was because people wanted to hear it, because it was soothing. It gave people some solace to whatever it was, if any difficulty, they were having in their lives. It's very, very meaningful, this song. And then you have a 36-piece orchestra coming in on the coda, of course, George Martin did that arrangement and conducted it. And what's also quite interesting is that Paul says, Don't let me down. hey you don't let me down. Well, guess what? Soon we heard a song called Don't Let Me Down. It's just kind of interesting. Again, I talk about this as you know every now and then, how one beatle will use some lyrics and then the same lyrics <laughs> will show up and a song written by another Beatle. That's just an example. The ending coda, as they call it, or the out chorus, as some people call it, is longer than the verses, all the verses and the bridges put together. That's very, very unusual. Now, how were they able to do that without the song becoming boring? Because it would have. Well, what did they do? Paul used that na-na-na-na-na background Chorus by him doing his scat improvisational vocals, which he hasn't done it since, and probably you know never will. And what he does vocally is phenomenal. Are you kidding me? So when you're listening to it and you hear Paul doing these vocal bits, you know between the na na nas. And by the way, there's there's like 35 people doing the na na nas along with with. Paul, John, George, and, and And so then, you know, you got a huge chorus going on, the na-na-na chorus. And then Paul's in there, you know, screaming, and he's doing all his bits, which we know what he does. And the thing that kept it interesting was like, oh, gosh, listen to what he did. And then, then every time it would come up for another little bit, he would do something different. And in doing so, he kept, ending fresh. That's why we can listen to that ending as long as it is and stay with the ending because we didn't know what he was going to do with his vocal improvisation. An idea, masterpiece song. It was written, it was inspired by Julian Lennon. John had left Julian and Cynthia Lennon for Yoko at this point before they recorded it, before, obviously before Paul had finished writing the song. He goes out to visit Julian and Cynthia. He can see that the little boy is sad because his daddy's gone and Paul says, and this is true, all this stuff, you probably know this. Paul's like, Hey, Jules, you know, don't make it bad. It's going to be all right. Hey, Jules. So he's figures, well, you know, hey, Jules, don't make it bad. Take a step, and he's going, oh, wow. Instead of hey, Jules, he changed it to hey, Jude because he thought, hey, Jude, sounded better than Jules. So there's the inspiration for this masterpiece. And it is a masterpiece. And to your point about, well, have you heard it enough? I did for a while. I said, you know what, I've heard this enough. And But then every now and then, I want to hear it again. I've got to get my Hey Jude fix. And I play it, play it periodically on my show for that reason, because it's such an amazing song. The magic is still there. And I love it very, very much, and I always will
0: one of the things i listen for on this song is when john sings that uh, when you get her, get her like he's in the background remember
1: to let her into your heart
3: Yeah, John John's little bits. Yeah, there's some little bits from John during during the song before it goes into the code. Yeah,
0: that's it, right. it doesn't sound like John. It's not old John. It's a new sounding voice of John. That's yeah. that I'm like because I initially I'm like, that's not John. That I don't know who that is. But it's him. Okay, so we go right into old brown shoe. It's the B side yeah. of Ballad of John and Yoko. This is a quick recording. It was recorded in April sixteenth to the 18th it was done really quick and then it was released in may so may yeah. 30th so like yeah. a month and a half it's ready to go uh, have, i have think it has a have thoughts about both ballad and john and yoko and old brown shoe is that maybe if they spent a little more time it wouldn't sound as rough however it has a cool demo culture to it that a lot of people do it's a knockoff John was doing this, ripping out singles. Uh, Thoughts came out, recorded it, it's out as a single. This 45 represented the same thing, where it's a quick thought, knock out, here it is as a single. I like it, I don't love it.
3: I think it's an excellent George Harrison song. And the guitar, the lead guitar, the riff, are you kidding? Oh God almighty. It's a fantastic guitar riff. And, you know, George is playing the electric guitars, plural, organ, and he's playing the bass, Tom, on it. Some people say, no, it's not George, it's Paul. No, it's George. You know, George has said it repeatedly, that he was playing bass, and on the bridge... The bass line is, is nuts. And he's doubling what he's playing on the electric guitar, which would make sense if he would play the bass, because he's simply doubling what he did on on the electric guitar. Uh, John's only participation, again, there's no guitar playing with John on this track. He just all, he, all John does, really, doesn't do much at all. He's just doing the background vocals. But we do have Paul playing that great piano part. That's Paul playing a tack piano, you know, which is, you know, like they put, they actually take thumbtacks, you know what those are, and they actually push them into the heads, uh, of the hammers, excuse me, the hammers on the key, the hammers inside the piano, and the hammers are those are the things that hit the strings, so that when you put the, the, the tack, the tacks, you put them into the hammers, then it makes it much brighter, and thus you get the sound of a, of a tack, tack piano. Uh, it's a song about duality, opposites, which you know, George is comfortable doing, and I think it's a great George song. I, I've always, I've always liked this song. I, I kind of think it's it's underplayed and overlooked, and
0: and we have don't let me down april 11 1969 b-side of get back billy preston is playing the, the organ hit number 35 at the time and there's a lot of covers benny king annie lennox matchbox 20 garbage this song has legs where through the years people have really gravitated to it it's actually like a I I think like a Hey Bulldog, where it came out, it wasn't appreciated at the time, but boy, has it been appreciated now.
1: Don't, don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let
3: me down. down. Okay, Don't Let Me Down. See, this is again the problem with this album. We'd already heard... Don't Let Me Down, there's the B-side to the Get Back single, which came out in early 1969. So it's like, okay, we've already heard this. All right. It's been released as a single on the B-side. Okay, now we're going to hear it again. And this song is 100% John pleading. He's pleading emphatically. And repetitively, to so Yoko, that's exactly what this is. telling her, "Don't let me down again and again and again, okay, got it now the the guitar riff is nice, and you know John and George play the uh the guitar riffs. Paul's bass line is really prominent. It might even be a bit much. I mean, it is really up there in the mix. It's great bass playing. I mean, his choice of notes is brilliant. Great bass line. And it's uh, Billy Preston who plays electric piano on this. The The thing that I find very fascinating musically about it is that uh, during the bridge part, I'm in love for the first time. First time. First time.
0: You know it's gonna last. It's a love that lasts
3: forever. It's a love that has no past. You have George and Paul playing a a, a very wonderful musical. Counterpoint. I mean, come on, that's, that's Beatle magic. They were still doing that, even though they were falling apart. That's one of my favorite bits about the song. Yeah, it's, it's a very good song, but I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, pretty much All I have to say about it.
0: The uh, final song is uh, Ballad of John and Yoko. It is John and Paul only. Song hit number eight, but it did go gold. You know, it's a skippable moment for me. It's not my favorite Beatles song. It's not a horrible song either. So it's not dreadful. I'm good not to listen to it. What's your thoughts?
3: This is total autobiographical. This was what was going on in John's personal life with Yoko. He was just telling everybody what they were going through, which was true. Everything he says, all of the lyrics in this song are 100% true. These are the things that he and Yoko were doing at this time in their lives together. So, if you were a fan of John and Yoko, then you're going to love this song. If you didn't like Yoko being with John, you're probably not going to like this song. The fact that it's Paul and John and not George is fascinating. I'll tell you why. Because George and John at this time in the Beatle World, which is April nineteen sixty nine, George and John were closer than Paul and John. Paul and John were not getting along because Yoko had come so dramatically into the picture that to a large extent Yoko replaced Paul in terms of the close relationship let's face it Paul and John before Yoko they were you know they were like twins they were brothers they were together all the time they were you know they loved each other i mean they were they were they were very 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 close and then all of a sudden it's like Yoko comes around, and John boots Paul out, and now this Japanese woman has replaced him. Not as a songwriter, obviously. But at this point, John and Paul weren't writing any songs together. It's fascinating to me that, that John wanted to do it with Paul for those reasons. And my understanding is, is that it was a great session. And I think it was great because they still really loved each other. I just think they, they, they were happy you know, to, to see each other again and to be back in the studio again. I mean, come on. They've been in the studio since like nineteen sixty two, for God's sake. And it's hard to just delete all that. You know, you can't forget all that history. It's not the Beatles, as you said, it's the Nurk Twins, as they call themselves for a short period many, many years ago. It was just John and Paul. And Paul happy again, you know, he loves to play the drums, you know. <laughs> so pulse back on the drums and playing the piano and the bass and then singing along with with John doing the harmony. So they were able to tap into that early sound. And the song itself, in terms of the genre, talk about early Beatles, this is a throwback. This is rock and roll. You know, it's back again to rock and roll. So is it a great song? No, it's not a great song. Is it a good song? Yes, it's a good song. And again, for John being so ballsy, you know, John had no fear. I mean, for him to say, Christ, you know, it ain't easy and I'm going to crucify him. After the whole debacle that occurred in 1966 <laughs> with his comment about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, and as a result, as you had mentioned, because of that, some stations refused to play it. So I'm glad they did it. It brought John and and Paul back together again briefly. But then after this, you know, they did, of course, they worked together in the studio in Abbey Road later in 69. But in September, soon after this, that's when John had finally said, that's enough. I want a divorce. So I'm glad that they were able to get this done uh, with just the two of them. I think it's very sweet. It was just John and Paul, and I'm glad that they did it.
0: So we have one more record to go. It's Let It Be, and with that, we'll close the chapter of The Beatles Come to America with, with The Beatles. Wow. wow.
3: Isn't that something? What a trip it's been so far, my friend, really. It really has been quite a trip.
0: Next episode, The Beatles, Let It Be. Now enjoy an original Brookhaven composition, Hide Your Love Away.
1: stand head in hand turn my face to the wall if she's gone I can't go on feeling too much small everywhere people stare each and every day I can hear Say, Hey, you've got to hide your love away. Hey, you've got to hide your love away. How can I even try? I can never win. Hearing them, seeing them, in the state I'm in. How could she say to me, love will find a way. Gather round all you clowns, let me hear you sing. got to hide your love away. Hey, you've got to hide your love away.
0: of episode.